0: Our singing as we were able to contemplate the Paradise Valley, or in fact to remain silent before the Lord as we sang just before that. All of these songs are in fact tremendous lessons and prepare our minds perhaps to turn our attention for a more extended period to the Word of God. How exciting and fascinating it is to be able to open the blessed pages of the grandest book of all, the Holy Scriptures, and to rest upon the guidance, the instruction that God has provided and to appreciate that this book is not one among many, but rather it is the one and only divinely given will of God. That set of blessings and ideas, in fact, helps us to understand the importance of Bible lessons and preaching and other matters in which we can concern ourselves with a better understanding of it. This evening, as you might have noted in the bulletin as well as on the wall to my left, we have a one-word title to the lesson this evening, the word silence, with an exclamation point following it. As if we should appreciate silence. And in fact, tonight, we shall give attention to some of the ways in which silence is not only requested of us, but demanded of us within the pages of the Word of God. As we give some thought to that, some introductory ideas might well be in order. And in fact, I've tried to state them Somewhat like this, the privilege of our assembly. Quite often a text to which we can turn our attention is that opening statement of the 122nd Psalm in which we are admonished to realize this thought. "'I was glad when they said unto me, "'Let us go up into the house of the Lord.'" This morning, as we looked forward to the gospel meeting that shortly is to be ours, the reality of it that's coming, that only reminds us of all of those occasions on which we can gather in the name of God to do His bidding and worship Him in spirit and truth, to look, to look forward to those occasions and the gladness that's ours. Here are some thoughts, though, about silence. Not as if it is a complete digression, but rather it is a central feature that is frequently reminded all of us in the Word of God. Wasn't it true that the wise man Solomon said that there is a time to speak and there is a time to keep silence. That reminds us doesn't it, that there are times we better would we, we in fact would be better off to simply be quiet, to simply in fact be those who observe or perhaps we participate in ways not in accordance to usage of our language and our speech verbally. There's a time to be silent. A moment ago, it was read from Amos 5.13 that on that occasion, in fact, there says it's prudent to keep silence. Meaning that for some occasion in the mind of the Holy Spirit then, and revealed, of course, through the writing of Amos, it was the better course of valor, it was the proper course of action, to be quiet. What would be a few of the times directed and listed in the Bible, in which it would be better for us to be silent. In fact, as you'll notice near the bottom, there are so many passages that in fact make mention of that phrase and that word, and tonight we will look at a few of them. But as we do that, I think the four that we will consider in some detail will be sufficient to remind us of the value of properly directed silence. Our first one is, in fact, this one. is the one to which that song was directed that Brother Trail led us in a few moments ago. In fact, the central text to which we shall turn our attention will be the last verse of Habakkuk chapter 2. You may wish to be turning there. It is a rather brief verse. It is one, nonetheless, that has such a ringing and clarion appreciation of the nature of silence. If we might already take note of what that verse proclaims. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. For isn't it true, the Lord is in His holy temple? Somewhat the setting of that passage will be greatly beneficial to us as we appreciate its message, but it went something like this. The book of Habakkuk is a reasonably brief book. It contains but three chapters. And really the setting of the book is an intensely interesting one and it goes somewhat as follows. As we well remember, the book of Habakkuk was in fact directed as God's message of doom and destruction upon the Chaldean nation. The Chaldeans had served their purpose in terms of years past, and now God's own people were sufficiently ungodly and sufficiently those who were rebellious to Him that God was going to bring punishment upon His own people, the nation of Judah. And God's instrument of punishment was the nation of Babylon, the Chaldeans. God, through His Holy Spirit, revealed that message of truth to, in fact, the man Habakkuk. And initially, Habakkuk was beside himself. In fact, his argument, his line of reasoning went something like this, God, Your people may, in fact, be somewhat ungodly. The people of Judah may, in fact, be rebellious and not be the kind of people they ought to be, but the Chaldeans are even worse And you're going to use them to punish your own people? Habakkuk did not understand. And in fact, he questioned God at least about the nature. He himself, according to the language, wasn't arguing with God. He just didn't understand. As chapter 1 of Habakkuk draws to its conclusion, God reminds him of His purity, of His majesty, of the fact that He does all things well. And in the opening two verses of chapter 2... Habakkuk waited to see God's answer. If you and I put that in position, we begin to notice again that Habakkuk was not in a position at that moment to fully appreciate the thoroughness of the way that God was doing things. As chapter 2 proceeds, there were other matters brought before the prophet. We might well remember that as the Chaldeans were described, they were people who were cruel, people who were violent, people who had little appreciation for the nature of the human being as made in the image of God. They were individuals who were a type of civilization that were exceedingly mean. A number of their features were listed in chapter 2, and ultimately as the chapter draws to its conclusion, it's also noted that they were an idolatrous people. That is to say, they turned their attention to idols, various things they'd made with their own hands, And it is in that context, in verses 19 and 20, it is then reminded to Habakkuk, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Isn't it interesting to give some thought to the nature of, in essence, what was being told to Habakkuk? Habakkuk, it is God that's in His holy temple. These various idols that they have made are not. These various images that they fashioned with their hands are not. They are in fact dumb idols as the text reads it in verse 19. They can't talk. They can't hear. Their hands are impotent to accomplish anything. But God is in His holy temple. He is the one who is able to hear and respond to our prayers. He is the one who is able to, in fact, to bring about anything that's in accordance to His will. Nations can crumble before Him if that's His wish. He can rise others to greatness if that is His will. All, in fact, is at His disposal. Habakkuk, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The human family is not in position to argue or to question the veracity of the will of God. Rather, it is our appreciation to understand His majesty and greatness and to do His bidding. For He always does that which is right. And He always does that which is His noble will. Amazingly, isn't it so often the human family chooses to almost wag their finger at God as if they know more than He does? as if they're wiser than He, as if they, by some means, are more knowledgeable than He. Do they really believe that? Maybe they need a great lesson on just the God of whom they think they're serving. God is not to be brought low to our level. God is in His holy temple. He stands as, of course, the ruler and the royal one at that of all of this universe and even everything that may exist outside of it. That is the greatness of the God that Habakkuk needed to appreciate and who the Chaldeans needed to appreciate. Isn't it true that that great leader of the Chaldean nation, Nebuchadnezzar, needed to appreciate that? And the time came in Daniel chapter 4, he did so, didn't he? He needed to be reminded there is a God in heaven and it is not your business to call Him into question or to in fact blaspheme His name. And we may remember after seven years of living like a beast, Nebuchadnezzar came to realize there is a God in heaven. And it is our duty and our business to do His bidding at all occasions and times. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The majesty of passages like that one bring us to other verses that state something very similar. In Zechariah 2, verse 13, another of the minor prophets, this time the noble Zechariah, some years after Habakkuk. But nonetheless, isn't it amazing how similar the words sound? Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord. Zechariah 2, verse 13, be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord. Here is the usage of that word silent, reminding us of our need to be attentive to that which God says to be understanding that it's not our position to lift our will above that which is His, but to be humble always before the great God of whom we serve. Jesus uttered words like these in Matthew the fourth chapter, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That implies that we, when it comes to service to God, need to be better listeners than we are talkers. We can't hear a lot if we're talking at the same time, can we? Maybe we've tried that. We seem to hear far more when we are the one silent listening to the one speaking. And so it is that the Lord again is in His holy temple. We in silence need to be greatly attentive to that which He proclaims and ever be ready at once to do that which He has commanded. Habakkuk, it seemed, learned that lesson well and so in many ways did at least some of the Chaldeans. What are some of the other ways the word silence is used in the Holy Scriptures? That first illustration was with regard to God Himself and being silent before Him. Here's another one. Silence in the face of calamity. So often when you and I see it, and indeed you and I may know of those, at least on the TV screen, we've seen that there are some not too far from us who have been faced with that very thing. Great loss loss of physical things, and even loss of family members, and sometimes many of them. We remember not too many days back, it was Japan who faced something terrible with regard to the earthquake, the tsunamis, and the things that followed. Calamities, you see, can sometimes be the order of the human lot. Let's give some thought to some verses that at least make discussion about the matter of calamity. Now, frankly, it's to be admitted there's more than one way to address a calamitous situation. And there's more than one way that might be the best at a certain moment, but one way that is at least mentioned in Scripture has to do with the employment of silence. Some of those verses that I've mentioned to you would take us to Lamentations 2, verse number 10. It was on this situation that another historical recollection might be in order. The children of Israel... On this occasion, there were some of them that were in the face of calamity. In fact, the elders of Jerusalem are the specific ones who were listed. And on this occasion, they overlooked the city of Jerusalem and they were overcome by calamity because they witnessed its destruction. Here was their treasured city. That place they had called home, the place where the temple was, the place where not only their homes were, their families were, it's the only place, no doubt, that many of them had ever called home. And yet the Babylonian armies came like an overrunning flood from the north and absolutely crushed it into ruins. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the palaces of the king. They destroyed the noble houses of those that were the highest officials of the land. They carted off so many of them into captivity. Nothing was left like the city they once had known. As those elders looked upon the city, they were in fact witnessing calamity and had done so in recent days. How was it that this particular passage mentioned their reaction to it? As you and I have just described, the thoughts that so many of them had. Jeremiah 7 verse 4 comes to mind. When we remember that the words from their lips on so many occasions had been, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They placed their hope so grandly in that physical edifice. And then when it was destroyed and when it was no more... Can you imagine the void that rested up in in their hearts and the void that was then present in their thinking and mind? No wonder in occasions we sometimes see that we struggle to find words when someone has faced something like that. You and I may well think about some of those individuals in Alabama or Mississippi or even in places in Tennessee who in the face of these tornadoes and other deadly weather storms in recent days, what would you and I say to a family for whom three or four members of that family is now lost, homes completely gone. every vestige of memories that they had in terms of sentimental matters are no more. You and I might struggle to find the right words to say. There were some in the Bible who seemed to find the right or struggled to find the right words as well. In job 2 verse 13, Job was a man who already had suffered much, hadn't he? After being one of the great patriarchs of the land of Uz, in fact, the Scripture describes him as one of the greatest men of the East. And then, as we well remember, in chapter 1, he lost so much of it. His animals, even his children. Later in chapter 2, even his health taken from him. All the while, three friends came to Job, they no doubt had become aware of the difficulties he now faced, the calamitous situation and he now was. What did they say to him? Well, many things they said through the book, but first, in Job 2 verse 13, they said nothing. For seven days they sat in silence. Their presence, I suppose they hoped, would be enough. Sometimes today you and I find ourselves struggling for words when we are in the presence of someone in a situation like that and it may be that words simply do no justice. It may be our presence is the best we can offer and perhaps that's enough. Perhaps being there to share a tear, being there to at least let them know they're being thought of and they're in one's thoughts and prayers, to let them know others are mindful of that which they face, Job's friends, it seems, were in that predicament. You and I sometimes today may find silence to be the order of business in the face of calamity. That instance of Job isn't the only one, and other verses might well be brought to our memory. Consider, in fact, Romans 12, verse 15. On that occasion, we studied that not long back on our Wednesday evening Bible studies, giving some thought to that set of verses that remind us that we are to let love be without dissimulation. That is to say that love should be unhypocritical. It should be real and genuine. It should not be that which is merely a show. And in the context of that, we notice, weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Let in fact that love be shown in fervency and in tremendous spirit of action you notice that not much there is said particularly about words and language. Is it possible then in the face of calamity that some of the dearest and most powerful bonds of appreciation might be shown with no words at all? Certainly, I think we can imagine such could be the case. In Romans 12 verse 9 or six verses earlier in that same chapter, as that matter of love, brotherly affection is thus described Some of those verses and some of those matters that follow seem to fit naturally into that essence of the matter of silence. Isn't it interesting that though we, you and I have the gift of speech and of language, sometimes in the Holy Scriptures it is the absence of that that seems to hold such high regard. What about a third instance in which silence is something that is mentioned as such a powerful reality? We mentioned it in passing a little earlier in the lesson, but the time has come to, in fact, be a bit more clear and a bit more direct about that, isn't it? Sometimes, certainly, it's to be understood in school systems. A child often learns little when he's doing the talking. No wonder teachers used to write so often on the report cards, Talks too much. child needs to listen a little more often. He needs to not quite do so much of the talking but to listen to the teacher, to listen to the principal, to listen when perhaps another student is making a presentation. There is indeed that time to be silent and that time to listen. There is in fact a time, as you and I appreciate in the Scriptures, when attention toward others and to listen in fact would be the more rightful thing to do. I've listed some of those thoughts in the following ways. It is so often, at least for some, a natural thing to do the talking. Have you been around someone who seems they can't let silence last very long, more than just a fleeting moment or so, when they need to speak? It seems to be a natural thing that they want to fill up every apparent void, no matter how minor, with their own speech and their own language. It may not always be that they are in love with the sound of their own voice, But nonetheless, they do seem to have the gift of talk. But yet the Bible, as we've already noted this evening, does lift high on occasion the interest and, in fact, the importance of silence. Here's another instance where some of that might be significant. In the 12th verse of Acts 15, we learn on that occasion when references were made about the order of business in the early church that some interesting comments, in fact, were made. It says the multitude became silent when, in fact, Paul and Barnabas were making record of that which had occurred and happened. Silence. They listened with intensity to the record that was being shared. And they listened with intensity so that they could have a better understanding of that interesting and somewhat overwhelming order of things that were happening in the days of the early church. There are times, of course, when you and I find ourselves, at least in a parallel situation, when it's with regard to the church, for example, to be keenly silent so that we miss not the message and we miss not the thought that's being shared. That matter of silence seen also in some of the words of James, the third chapter. Amazingly, it's a text that so often has been a challenge to all of us, I'm sure, in which James made mention of the power of the tongue, and how impressive and needful it is to attempt to tame it. For didn't he state that the tongue is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison? And in fact, how noble he said it is when a man is able to bring that tongue, at least in some order and in some degree in control, so that he has his language to the point where he can be silent when those occasions and when those needful circumstances arise. Silence. It is amazing, isn't it, to think about the impressiveness of those times when we need to be good listeners. Amos did again say, didn't he, in Amos 5.13, prudent it is to be silent on certain occasions. That silence is perhaps also seen in the utterance of the psalmist in Psalm 141, verse number 3. There the psalmist made plea to God, said, A watch, O Lord, over my lips. The psalmist was pleading that God would allow him to understand the wisdom of keeping his mouth shut. Set a watch so that I'll say what I should, but I will refrain from speaking what I ought not. Today, that would be a wise prayer for many of us, wouldn't it? For perhaps one of the easiest ways to err is to do so in speech, to say what we ought not say, or perhaps we say it in a way we shouldn't. It comes across hurtful and mean and less than attentive to that which is the real problem and need of the moment. Set a watch, O Lord, over my mouth and over my lips. David knew well from time to time what it meant to err by way of language and speech, didn't he? He was guilty in Second Samuel 24 of speaking that which he really ought not have spoken and doing what he ought not have done. Maybe you and I today find ourselves an occasion that our speech gets us into more trouble maybe than anything else. We blurt things out before we thoroughly have thought about it and thus what we say comes across wholly different than the indication we might have wished. And in that case, perhaps it brings harm. Someone misunderstands what we said and takes it the wrong way and as a result, perhaps a bit of a division results Maybe a faction arises. Maybe hard feelings are the result when in fact that was never the intent. And in fact it brings regret that such ever happened. If only we had taken a moment and kept our mouth closed, perhaps with a deeper reflection we might have said it differently or maybe not said it at all. Interesting, isn't it, what that kind of circumstance can bring our way, even beyond all of that, near the bottom When we assemble in times of Bible study or the lesson or when someone else is perhaps leading us in singing, as if you please, our attention should be on the words of that song or on the message of the Bible study hour or, in fact, on the character of that lesson as it's brought forth. That's not the time to be giggling or passing notes. That's not the time to be, in fact, talking about what's going to happen tomorrow. Those conversations are better left for later, aren't they? And thus, here are times when silence is something that is a very important matter, isn't it? It still is an impressive thing to recall the response in the book of Nehemiah when they were in presence to listen to the law being read, that they listened with attention and did so for hours because they desired to understand and to know that which Ezra and the others were speaking on that occasion. Three instances in which silence is lifted so highly in the Scriptures. Perhaps a fourth one, and then the lesson tonight will have drawn to its conclusion. A fourth discussion that involves the issue of silence, and one that is lifted so very highly. It is one, of course, that we find in the New Testament, stated rather matter-of-factly, both in First Timothy chapter two as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 having specifically to do with women or to do with ladies. You and I, of course, as we uphold passages like these, we are often looked upon by so many with great questions in their mind because there are some who, quite frankly, do not understand. Have you had conversation with or perhaps read articles by those who would almost consider it lifeable? to interpret the verses in these two chapters the way that you and I see them rather straightforwardly presented. Given that there is but some tiny matter, at least at the chromosome level between men and women, some might ask, so you mean to tell me that just based on the fact that there is one chromosome difference, she is not allowed to preach? She is not allowed to, in fact, proclaim in a public way at a mixed assembly matters of the truth? And they simply are unwilling to accept it. Might we again notice that it is not our intent to make the statement on the basis of a chromosome difference. God made no usage of that word, but God did say what was His will, didn't He? In fact, look at some of the things here that might be affirmed with me. It is certainly the case that God fashioned two sexes. There was, of course, the man, fashioned and created first, and then there was the woman fashioned we remember that in genesis 2 verse 7 an encompassing statement is made and the lord god formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul with adam in presence it was noted of course that adam was alone and it wasn't good genesis 2:18 It was in the aftermath of that that God brought that deep sleep upon Adam and from his side he took a rib and with that he fashioned. He brought into being a woman and he brought her to Adam. We notice in the creation, the fashioning of that woman. We find the very last element of that which God created and what a special role she serves as well as the special role the man serves in the church. But it still is the case that though each has their respective duties and responsibilities, that there's a distinction in the way in which those works are to be carried out, and the spheres of influence are described in different ways. In fact, in these passages before us, we are specifically told that all of us may sing, and we are commanded to do so, Colossians 3.16. And all of us and by way of that singing, teaching, admonishing each other. But when it comes to that realization of the presentation, if you please, she is explicitly said not to usurp authority over the man. And in the Greek that means she is not to possess or have dominion over the man. Inasmuch as that's stated, it's not our job to question the God of heaven. It's not our position to, in fact, assert loopholes and ways around that. That was his directive, and he based it, did he not? As he described in that very same chapter upon matters that took place at the very outset of time, he did not base it on a cultural conclusion, nor did he base it on factors specifically in either Ephesus or Corinth, but rather he took matters back to the very beginning. The man was formed first. And also it was the woman who was in the transgression by way of deception. Given both those reasons, it was the inspired apostle who thus asserted, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And his employment of that word silence, it seems exceedingly important to notice. It is not as if. God demanded, of course, the woman to not make the slightest of utterances or sounds. She can sing and she must do so if she is to do the bidding of God. If a woman were to come forward, and in fact I ask of her to make that confession that she believes with all her heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, may she audibly say yes? Of course she may. She is not usurping authority over the man in that instance. But in terms of those instances in which that would be what is done, she is commanded to be in silence. It is interesting to notice that in as much as that silence is listed on that occasion, doesn't it remind us that there are places in the Bible where the silence is indeed golden? And that silence is in fact then the will of God. As we think about the matters of silence discussed in the lesson tonight, We've looked at these four instances. And in regard to conclusion, we might highlight some overarching themes toward all of them. As you look with me at some of these, the topic, I suppose, has been an interesting one and somewhat fascinating for each of us. Perhaps one final notice that raises our peaked interest in regard to silence might be found in the eighth chapter of the Revelation. The opening verse of that chapter we find that for the space of half an hour, there was silence in heaven. We could even appreciate from that that even the angelic host, in their appreciation of that which was being unfolded on that occasion, was brought to silence. If that be the case, isn't it true today we can understand the importance of silence, that there's a time to speak and that there is a time to be silent. We've looked then tonight at the times of silence in regard to our approach toward God. For the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And then we studied about silence in the face of calamity, when there are times we struggle to find the best things to say. Thirdly, we looked at silence, particularly as it related to the matters of women in the assembly when it comes to those teaching issues. And then silence is it related to our need to listen sometimes more so than to do the speaking? Tonight, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, is our thinking about silence. These are things that we can apply day by day, recognizing the need to watch our speech and those appropriate times to be silent. One thing for sure is that there are times, of course, to speak up, and that perhaps will be the fodder for another lesson. To come not too far in the future but for tonight as we think about silence friend if you find yourself separated from God tonight whether as an alien sinner one who has never become a member of the church of our Lord or one who though one time being such a member no longer is faithful you really do at this time need to realize God's in his holy temple it's not he that moved it was you You're the one that has sinned and you have brought yourself so far removed because of sin from where He is. You need to come to fellowship with Him, to be reconciled to Him. You do that in the words of Romans 5, verses 18 to 20. And that reconciliation is effected through the gift of His Son, the Son of God. If tonight you need to, as an alien sinner, come to Him for an initial time, it is that He demands of you... You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, understanding that they are what have separated you from Him. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized humbly, simply as a burial in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If we could assist you in that way tonight, it will be a grand day for all eternity for you. If you have one time been such a faithful one but no longer are, come back this evening confess those errors if they have been of a public character, repent of them, plead to God for forgiveness thereof. He has promised to hear and forgive. If tonight we could be of assistance in either of those ways, it would be our privilege, and it would be a great evening, of course, for you. If we could help you in doing either of those things tonight, would you not let that be known in what way we can assist while together we stand and while we sing?